C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes about the issue of forgiveness, he says this, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) Forgiveness is one of those topics like we all know that we need it. We know that it's something that Christians are supposed to do. We know that Jesus has told us that we're supposed to do that. Uh, And yet it's one of those issues uh, that I think we really need help in not only knowing how to do it, but even more in finding courage to do it. Luke 17, this is one of the, the classic passages where Jesus teaches us about forgiveness. And it's interesting even the way um, the story of the ten lepers who get healed is connected to this uh, discussion with Jesus has with his disciples about forgiveness. And I actually think that there's a reason for that in, uh, as Luke puts this material together. Here we're going to read this passage and hear what God has to teach us tonight about the issue of forgiveness. Jesus says, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go, Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now there's another um, little saying of Jesus's about forgiveness that we should look at as well. And it's the next passage that I put there from Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus is talking about when you go into into the temple or the church to pray. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Sometimes Jesus is just so direct and so pointed, and he wish that he wasn't so clear. I mean, there's really no way to get around what he's saying here in verse 3 and verse 4. And yet we often think that what Jesus is saying is just not practical. 
And so we either try to pretend that we've never heard this before, or we try to pretend that surely he must mean something. Surely he couldn't mean that we're supposed to let people just walk over us like a doormat. I mean, somebody comes and sins against us seven times in a day, and we're supposed to continue to, 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 to forgive them? What in the world is this talking about? Uh, tonight, the way we're going to get at this topic of forgiveness is to, to look at it three ways. First, we're going to look at what does Jesus teach us that forgiveness actually is? What is forgiveness? And then we're going to look at the way the disciples respond when they finally get what he's actually saying. What is their response and what can we learn from that? And then finally, where, where can we find the power to forgive as Jesus tells us to here? Let's pray before we dig into this. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word, even though at times we wish that it wasn't so clear. And we wish that it didn't just tell us so clearly to do things that we find absolutely impossible to do. We pray that tonight that you would help us, that you would forgive us for the way we ignore your word, that you would help us to understand that what you lay out here for us is not slavery, it's not drudgery, but it's actually what we were made for. And it's what the glory of your kingdom is about, to be forgiven and extend your forgiveness, this countercultural power that is literally destined to change the world. We thank you for bringing us into this, not by our own merit, but by grace alone. And we pray that you would give us grace even now to be able to grasp how wide and long and deep your love is that we might, out of those riches, forgive those we're in relationship with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is forgiveness? I think the first thing that we need to notice here in verse 3 is Jesus brings up this topic of forgiveness in the context of talking about rebuking somebody. See what he says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. What Jesus is teaching us here is the ultimate goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of sin. Jesus is not just wanting to build a community of people who are doormats, who just let people walk all over them and pretend that they've never been hurt. I think Christians really need to understand this and really don't seem to get this. I've been a pastor now for 14 years, and I will tell you that I think one of the issues that Christians really misunderstand is this issue of forgiveness in this way. They tend to think that forgiveness means pretending that I haven't been sinned against. I meet so many people who've grown up in church who when they think about forgiveness, all they think about is how they need to be forgiven but they don't really think about how they've been sinned against. In other words, Christians, especially if they've grown up in more legalistic or fundamentalist churches, tend to understand or believe that they're sinners, but they tend to have a hard time believing that they've been sinned against. And the reason that that's important is that Jesus here has this goal. Forgiveness is about the goal of stopping the spread of sin. As C.S. Lewis talks about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that when uh, Aslan you know, is, is resurrected and the, the table cracks, the stone table on which he had been sacrificed, uh, Lewis says that now death has begun to work backwards. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Death is working backwards now. Something revolutionary happened 2,000 years ago 
in time, space, history, it really happened. If you'd been there, you would have been able to see it. You would have been able to take a picture. It really happened, and it changed everything. And now death is working backwards. And probably the, the currency that is bringing about this kingdom is forgiveness. But forgiveness is not just Christians trying to pretend that everything's fine. What, uh, what people used to call Pollyannaism. You guys are probably too young to remember this Pollyanna show where she was this girl on TV who used to just go around and try to pretend that everything was fine. Christians often fall into that and think that what it means to be a Christian is to pretend that, well, if God's in charge and he's on the throne, then I should just pretend that everything must be fine. But Jesus says here is that sin needs to be rebuked. So that's an important point. True forgiveness, the biblical understanding of forgiveness, is not just about getting things off your chest so that you feel better. It's not just about pretending that there's not been an offense so that you can get along and not have conflict. Neither one of those are worthy goals for Christians. Jesus says here that the goal is to stop the spread of sin and to keep it from multiplying and festering. Jesus links forgiving and rebuking here. And, and again, you have to ask the question, what, what is your goal? When you think about the issue of forgiveness and you think about, you know, God is calling me to forgive this person or God is calling me to confess my sin to somebody and beg their forgiveness, what is your goal in doing that? Because honestly, our temperaments and our personalities tend to push us to one of two ungodly goals. The first is the kind of person, and this is really me by temperament, the kind of person who loves to rebuke sin, but not for the purpose, not for the purpose of bringing people to repentance, not in a way that people would be softened and drawn back to God and His grace, um, but in the way that, that just sort of stops the discomfort in my life. If you're like me in this, you're what we might call a peace breaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, but a lot of people are peace breakers. In other words, their goal in rebuking is just to get things off their chest and to punish somebody who's hurt them. And they love what Jesus says here, um, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Rebuke him. Good. Jesus told me I can go rebuke him. And I love to rebuke people because I'm really mad at everybody and everybody's treated me poorly and therefore I love this. I'm going to be somebody who's a peace breaker. But on the other hand, or probably most of y'all, because y'all are nicer than me, uh, is what we might call a peace faker. And if you grew up in the South, this is probably who you are. Peace fakers are people who, again, don't have the godly goal of wanting sin to be stopped and the spread of sin to be stopped. Their goal is merely to have a lack of conflict in relationships. And, and this is you know, sort of a substitute for what God is calling us to be about with extending real forgiveness. The peace faker is somebody who wants to quote-unquote forgive, but what they really mean is they want to just be able to forget that the offense ever happened without rebuking, without calling attention or having to say, this was really wrong what happened. That They think that what I need to do whenever there's an issue that's happened or sin that's happened, what my goal is and what God's calling me to be about is to just try to pretend that it didn't happen and rise above it. But that's not what Jesus is after either. Jesus wants sin to be named, dealt with, and the spread of it to stop. If your goal in forgiveness is not to stop evil, 
but it's just to tell the person off or to merely end the conflict and end the tension, then your goal is not what Jesus is calling us to be about. So that's the first point about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness always, it's true forgiveness, and it's not just peace-breaking or peace-faking. It has the goal of wanting to stop the spread of sin. The second point to understand, to understand what forgiveness is, is that forgiveness is an action. I think I, actually there's a typo here. I, I said not just a feeling. I think I would rather make that a little stronger and say that forgiveness is an action. It's not a feeling. And it's not based on the other person's sincerity. And I'll get that in a minute. Listen, how do we know that forgiveness isn't a feeling? Well, look at verse 4. If your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. I don't think that Jesus expects that seven times in a day you could feel warm and fuzzy towards this person who continually sins against you. Jesus is not saying that forgiveness is feeling warm fuzzies and pretending and feeling like everything's fine. It's not a feeling. What Jesus is saying is you need to grant forgiveness to this person over and over and over again. He's not saying that you need to be able to feel like you love this person and have warm fuzzies towards them. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. And that is absolutely vital if you would understand what the Bible says about forgiveness. How could you get rid of your anger seven times in one day? But forgiveness is also not based on performance, true forgiveness, or the other person's sincerity. Because, listen, if he sins against you seven times in a day, if she sins against you seven times in a day, do you really think they're very sincere? Jesus says, does not say, if they sin against you seven times, well, they're obviously not sincere, and so you've reached a limit. Right? And, and there's one point, right, where Jesus or Peter asks him, okay, well, you know, what if, I, what if I forgive somebody seven times in a day? He says to Jesus, is that good enough? And Jesus says, no, you need to forgive this person if he sins against you seven times, 70. In other words, seven is not the limit. In other words, okay, I, I have to do it seven times, but if somebody sins against me eight, okay, well, then that's, you know, Jesus is reasonable and he understands that I can only forgive so much. No, the point here is you should continually grant forgiveness. But again, it's not, just, it's not just a feeling, and it's not just pretending that everything is fine. And, and you may say, well, it, how can you say that, that this forgiveness um, is not based on performance? Because in verse 3, what does he say? If he repents, forgive him. So Kevin, how can you say, how does that make sense? How does verse 3 and verse 4 fit together? Because it seems that, verse 4, the repentance that this guy is doing seven times in a day cannot be real and cannot be sincere. And so if Jesus in verse 3 is saying, if he repents, forgive him, and then verse 4 says, well, if he repents seven times in one day, forgive him. Do you see the tension there? So do you have to judge whether the person's really sincere, like verse 3 says, or do you have to forgive them whether they whether they seem sincere or not, or even if they can't possibly be sincere. How do we resolve this? And that's why I put the passage from Mark 11 in here. Because look at what Mark 11 says. Jesus is talking about when you're in church, and he's talking about the person that is there, not in your presence necessarily. But when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, 
Forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, putting these together, here's, here's I think what Jesus is teaching, if you put both these ideas together. There is a difference between forgiving somebody and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and restoration of the relationship. What Jesus is teaching here in verse 4 and what he's teaching in Mark 11 is the heart attitude that has to come before before restoration of a relationship and before forgiveness can be granted. We have to commit to forgive someone, to not hold what they've done against us against them. And then to move together toward them in a relationship of trust again Jesus is saying in verse 3 is dependent upon the sincerity and the fruit of their repentance. So do you understand what he's saying? Forgiveness is first and foremost between you and God. And you have to forgive those who sin against you. Jesus says you don't have a choice. You have to commit to forgive the people that have sinned against you. But then he says, when it comes down to restoring or being reconciled or being in a relationship with this person that's hurt you, maybe time and time and time again, then then the issue of sincerity of repentance comes into play. Forgiveness can be granted even where relational trust is not yet appropriate to extend. And this is very important because a lot of Christians, again, if you think that forgiveness means just pretending that everything is fine, well, then you may find yourself feeling like, okay, this person has abused me, they've taken advantage of me physically, sexually, emotionally, and yet what Jesus is telling me is I just need to forgive them and I need to extend the same kind of trust that I always have. No, he does not say that. He says, yes, you need to forgive them. Yes, you need to not hold it against them. But the restoration of the relationship is dependent upon the sincerity of their repentance. And as the Bible teaches, repentance is known by its fruits. Do you understand this? The Bible is not teaching you that to be a good Christian, you need to continually let people sin against you. Remember, the goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of sin. And if you keep that in mind, it helps you know how to navigate these things. Listen, the Bible does not encourage what are sometimes called boundaries. I I know that that concept is trying to get at something helpful, but really what the Bible would say is you're called to forgive and to love, and part of that means not letting this person sin against you anymore. It's a much more proactive way of thinking about it rather than just thinking about boundaries, which tends to make you think about protecting yourself. No, the Bible says you need to assault this person with love, and it may mean standing before them and say, I will not allow you to berate me like that. I will not allow you to relate to me that way. I'm going to hang up the phone when you talk to me that way. That's part of this whole idea of forgiveness. And do not believe that because you may have to do that and draw those kinds of lines in a relationship that you can't forgive them. No, the com- you have to actually forgive and exercise wisdom. And um, you know, I would love to help you with that as you think about difficult relationships and what does this look like and how do we work out the, the logistics of this. Um, come talk to me. We'll pray together and we'll talk about this. Um, but that, that's, that's an important thing. Forgiveness is an action, not just a feeling. 
Um, and, and you have to fit these two things together. The other thing I want to say here, minor point but important, asking for forgiveness is not the same thing as apologizing. Uh, asking for forgiveness should be owning up, owning up to your sin and being specific. I can't tell you how many times, you know, even I see it in my own life. I do this and my wife is kind to call me on it. To, to basically say, I'm sorry you feel that way, rather than saying, forgive me for what I've done. Or to say, you know, I, I'm sorry I hurt you. Okay, well, that's different than saying, I've sinned against you, please forgive me. Do you understand? There are a lot of relationships that for years and years and years, forgiveness is never asked for and forgiveness is never granted. Because when forgiveness should be going on, what really goes on is mere apologies. And then the other person says, well, that's okay, don't worry about it. That's not forgiveness. That's peace faking. And it will eventually come home. I, uh, I, I sent out a prayer request to some of the people that pray and support the, the work of RUF here. And uh, a friend of mine emailed me back and said, it's a good topic. I think it's a relevant topic. I'm glad you're doing this. I was just talking with a friend of mine today at lunch whose marriage is ending after 10 years. And I think the issue that's, that's at the bottom of it is they've never, they've never extended forgiveness to one another. It's never been a part of their marriage. Yeah, they would pr- try to get past hurts and try to, you know, act like it didn't happen or try to forget it and move on. But they've never, they've never had this currency of forgiveness. And ultimately, it's just killed any love that they had. Forgiveness is absolutely vital. And an apology is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Saying, I hurt you or I'm sorry you feel that way is not the same thing as saying, I have sinned. And I want to own up to it, and I want to ask you to forgive me. I remember um, years ago when I was first in the ministry, um, having the opportunity to see this very clearly and almost getting punched um, by a guy. Really one of the most horrific cases of abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse that I've ever known was this girl. And um, in working with her, it finally got to the point where it seemed that it would be good to have a meeting. I think we were meeting like at a McDonald's somewhere between her parents and her. She'd, she was doing all kinds of really destructive things. Her parents were concerned, rightly so, but had never owned any of the issues about what had been going on, the way her b- father had abused her. And uh, so we decided, you know, I was like, well, you know, let's sit down. Her parents called me. They were worried about the kind of, and she was doing some crazy stuff. Um, destructive, very destructive things. But we sat down, and I remember, you know, you know, the girl finally said to her dad, you know, named some of the, the ways that he had harmed her. And I, I remember him looking at her and saying, well, you know, I'm really sorry that you felt that way. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, that's, that's, not, that's, not con- that's not a confession. That's not asking for forgiveness. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, slammed, the, slammed both his fists on the table and just erupted. But he hadn't, he, hadn't, he hadn't asked for her forgiveness. He hadn't owned it. All he said was, I'm sorry that, I'm sorry that you felt this way. Sorry that there's this rift in our relationship. I'm sorry that you're doing all these destructive things. I'm sorry with how things have turned out, but that's not the same thing. It's not forgiveness. And she would have been an absolute fool to be reconciled to him. 
She needed to grant forgiveness in her heart, and she did. And actually, by God's grace, they were reconciled, and he did ask forgiveness on his deathbed. You don't always get that in this life, I have to tell you. But we have to grant forgiveness. All right. What is forgiveness? The last point, it's the acceptance of a debt. The Greek word really means to assume a debt. Now, how do we do that? Um, I'll go through this briefly, but Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, has a helpful way. He says, the first thing you have to do is you have to assess how much you've been robbed. Whenever a wrong has happened, somebody has to pay. Forgiveness never happens without somebody having to pay. Again, forgiveness does not equal forgetting. A lot of Christians are confused about that. I think that passage in Jeremiah 31 that we used as a call to worship is one of the reasons. Because people like that, that verse where it says, where God says that, um, you know, I will forgive you and I'll remember your sins no more. And they think, well, that's, if that's what it means for God to forgive, that, that he forgets our sins and doesn't remember them, well, then that's what we should do. And our goal should be to not remember these things. But listen. That passage that we read in Jeremiah 31, the word remember there is not a word that's talking about God developing amnesia. The God who knows all things, the omniscient God, can never forget what, that, what he's saying in that Jeremiah 31 passage is, I am committed, I am committed to not deal with you as your sins deserve. In other words... Jeremiah 31 is not God saying, I'm going to develop amnesia, and if you're going to be my follower, you need to do that too. No, what God is saying is, I'm committed to not hold your sin against you. And that's what he calls us to be about. Dan Allender, a great Christian counselor whose book, Bold Love, if you want to read one book on how does this actually flesh itself out in relationships with difficult people, Bold Love is the book I'd highly recommend. He says this in there. He says, I do not believe forgiveness involves forgetting the past and ignoring the damage of past or present harm. To do so, even if it were possible, would be tantamount to erasing one's personal history and the work of God in the midst of our journey. The only way for the forgive and forget mentality to be practiced is through radical denial, deception, or pretense. And I think he's absolutely right. So the first thing we have to do to forgive is we have to assess, I've been robbed. You have to admit it. You have to own it. You have to put a name on it, right? And not pretend, oh, it was nothing. Living in that kind of denial cuts off the power of forgiveness that God wants to see come to our relationships. But then we have to pay the debt. First, you have to assess how you've been robbed. You have to own it. You can't pretend. And then you need to assume the debt, pay the debt, rather than requiring payment for the per- from the person who wronged us. What does that mean? Listen, there are all kinds of ways that we try to get payment. We harbor grudges. We make sure that people know that we're not happy with them, right? We try to shame them sometimes by being overly merciful so that they'll feel really bad about how they've treated us. Uh, maybe sometimes we slander them to others. Christians love to do this. I, I, I need you to pray for me. So-and-so has really hurt me, and they really did all these bad things to me, and you know, I'm really having trouble trusting them and forgiving them. I re- we do this. We slander people and call it prayer requests, right? So that we feel more powerful than them. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay. 
How do you do that? How do you do that? It means to be cordial and warm to them, even though they don't deserve it. It means to not let them continue to sin against them because you want their good, even if it means your own discomfort. It means to affirm and praise them to others. It means to pray for them and to will their good, even when you don't want it in your heart. Whoa. Ultimately, and this is what Romans 12 says, it means to revoke our right to revenge without losing our hunger for justice. Look at that passage that I put on on the paper there for you. Paul says this in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, and I love that because it may not be possible, but if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is saying here is you do not need to lose your hunger for justice. But you need to understand and believe that there is coming a day when all accounts will be set right. And forgiveness means trusting God to set things right. It means revoking your right to be the judge. Because there is a judge and you're not him. Are you willing to trust that God will make it right? A lot of people, you see, don't like the idea of God's judgment. We live in a world where people are very uncomfortable with the idea that God is a judge. But let me tell you, I don't know how you can live in this world if you don't have belief that God will make all things right one day. Do not lose the doctrine of judgment that God is a judge. What you give up in, in sort of creating a God who seems more likable, what you give up, you can't afford to give up, which is the belief and the knowledge that things will be set right, that there will be no sin left unpunished. Every sin ever created, every sin ever ever committed, I mean, will be punished either on the head of the person who committed it or on the person of Jesus. There will be no loose ends of that, you can be sure. Okay, so that's what forgiveness is. How How do we respond to that? Hopefully the way the disciples respond. I think their response is perfect. Look at what they say. When Jesus explains what forgiveness is, they say, Lord, increase our faith, right? Increase our faith. And I think we have to say the same thing. Lord, how can we possibly do this? How can we possibly do this? And here's the thing I want you to understand. Faith does increase, and it should increase. How does faith increase? It increases by feeding on the character and promises of God. And that's what Jesus leads them into in these next little sections. Jesus says, look, if you have faith, you have power to do the impossible. In Jesus' day, it was believed that a mulberry tree could not be uprooted for 600 years. And so Jesus says, if you have faith, if you have faith at all, you can say to this mulberry tree, this thing, you can say the absolute impossible. Here's the point. Forgiveness Forgiveness being granted is always, always testimony to the miraculous power of God and the kingdom of God breaking in 
you do not have and I do not have the ability to do what Jesus says here. If forgiveness happens in our relationship, it's because God has broken in with supernatural power. And how does he do that? How does he increase our faith? Well, the first thing he does is he teaches us about humility. Look what Jesus, see where Jesus goes. He tells this little parable. And, and it's, a, it's a strange parable, isn't it? It's a parable that really bothers a lot of us, I probably. Jesus basically says, look, think of it this way. If you're a servant, if you have a servant, and you come in from working all day, would any of you say, oh, servant, sit down and eat with me? Would any of you say that? Now, in Greek, there's no question of the answer that Jesus expects. Because in Greek, when you ask a question, the answer you expect is there in the grammar. In the English, we don't have that same feature. So Jesus is not, he's not expecting you, anybody to say, yeah, that would be fair and that would be kind and that's what we should do. No, Jesus says, I expect everybody to answer, no, that would be ridiculous. He's my servant. And that's what Jesus says. Wouldn't the servant be expected to say, sit down, master, let me make your food, and after you're settled and you've eaten, then I'll sit down and eat. This is the appropriate place for a servant, okay? And Jesus says, this is how you should think of yourself in relation to God. That key for you being able to extend forgiveness is understanding that you are an unworthy servant, that what you have, you don't deserve. Cultivating a sense that you're an unworthy servant who's been blessed beyond what you believe and that even when you do the things that it seems you have no power to do, you still have no, you still don't get any righteousness from that. You still are only have been one who's done your duty. Do you see what he's saying here? The way you get this humility you know, when you refuse to forgive, what, I guess what Jesus is saying here, when you refuse to forgive, even though you are a servant, you're acting like you're the king. You flip things upside down. Therefore, to be able to forgive, you need to get back a right understanding of who you really are. That's the first thing he says. What's the second thing he says? The second thing is he says you need to be people who understand that you are cleansed lepers. Cleanse lepers who need to be thankful for what's happened to you. This is a really interesting story, kind of stuck in here. But it has everything to do with understanding where the power to forgive comes from. Jesus cleanses ten lepers. Only one of them comes back. And this is fascinating. If anybody ever tells you, nobody ever worshipped Jesus in the Gospels. Or Jesus never asked anybody to worship him. That was something the early church made up. Here's the passage where you can show that they're wrong. The Greek word used here for what this guy does when he falls before him is the word worship. To prostrate yourself, prostrate yourself before somebody and worship. And that's what he does. And Jesus doesn't say, get up, you blasphemer. There's only one God. God the Father. Why are you worshiping me, a mere man, even though I'm a wonderful teacher? Why are you worshiping me? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Where are the other nine? They should all be here, bowing at my feet, worshiping me. That's a pretty remarkable thing. And what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot forgive except to the extent that you understand that you're an unworthy servant and that you've been forgiven something that you never could have dealt with yourself. 
Do you know how hopeless it was to be a leper in the first century? They can't even get close to Jesus. They have to stand at a distance. Not only that, but this one is a Samaritan. He has no claim upon Jesus. He's not part of Jesus' family. He has no claim upon Jesus. He's somebody from the despised race. And yet Jesus, as they're going along, cleanses them. And this one comes back and throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him. What Jesus is teaching us is that you have to be able to see that you have been forgiven so much that you are now so wealthy where you had nothing. You had no hope, no future, no nothing. Now you are a co-heir with Christ. You've been cleansed. You've been welcomed into his family. You've been made a child of God. You've been made a citizen of heaven. You have all of this. Because the key is you can never assume and pay a debt unless you understand that you're fabulously wealthy. And you are. See, you know this because you know that in order to forgive somebody, the people that you find it so difficult to forgive are the ones who've hurt you in the area where you're most insecure. The people who have hurt you in the areas where... See, there are some things you can forgive. It can just sort of roll off of you because it's not... It's not your righteousness. It's not a place where you feel insecure. But let somebody betray you in, in, a, in, a, in a place where you really have to have it for your own sense of, of well-being. Let somebody, for instance, wrong you and say to you that I don't find you romantically desirable. And you feel so insecure about that already. And you will find it impossible to forgive. Right? In other words, unless you find that you have riches to spare in a particular area, you will not be able to forgive somebody who sinned against you in that area. You may be able to forgive them in other areas, but you will not be able to forgive them with those core issues. And so what is it? What's vital is to understand and to practice, to practice the spiritual, regular spiritual discipline of thankfulness for what you've been given in Christ. We don't spend enough time thinking about it. We don't spend enough time meditating upon it. We don't spend enough time encouraging one another with what we have in Christ. What does it mean to be a co-heir with Christ? What does Christ inherit? All things. Right? God says to him, says, sit at my right hand until I make you know, all, all, all of your enemies, you know, bow at your feet and give you all things. And, and the Bible says that we are co-heirs, that whatever Jesus inherits, he gives to us. Right? One of the Puritans said it so well. He says, those who are riding on their way to be crowned think very little of rain along the way. In other words, if you're on your way to be coronated, it really doesn't matter that much if you get rained on. But see, the, the, the perspective is, do you understand that you're heading for coronation one day? Unless you understand that, unless you understand that that is secure, that that future can never be threatened, well, then you have to get life and satisfaction out of every moment of every day, out of every relationship. And you can't possibly give up anything. You can't possibly let your reputation be defamed. It's all you have. You can't possibly let um, people disappoint you. They're all you have. But if you're a Christian, it's not all you have. 
And the key to being able to forgive is to understand how fabulously wealthy you are in the particular area that you feel so insecure and so vulnerable. Where are you insecure? What thing can't you forgive? A couple, couple concluding thoughts here. I know I'm going long, but this is a big topic and it's an important one. Forgiveness is costly, but brothers and sisters, forgiveness brings healing. One of the great lies of the enemy of our souls is to tell us that if you forgive somebody, and he tells us this all the time in your heart of hearts, I know you've heard this voice, if you forgive her, then you, she wins. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie from the pit of hell. When you forgive somebody, Jesus wins. His kingdom advances. Most of our relationships will only go to the level, a certain level, and they will never grow in the kind of intimacy we want and long for because we don't know how to forgive. And we think that the goal of relationship is to always get along. No, the goal of relationship is to mature, but the only way it matures is for forgiveness to be extended. Jesus wins when forgiveness happens. And unforgiveness, my, my old pastor Scotty Smith used to put it this way, unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping that someone else will die. Do you understand that a failure to forgive isn't just wrong, it destroys you. It eats you up. It makes you less human. You were made to be in the image of God, and God's nature is that he is the God who forgives. And when we act out of forgiveness, and when we extend forgiveness, we're becoming more like Christ and more human, and more real, and more authentic, and more of what we were made to be. That's the first. The second point is this. Forgiveness and forgiving others is actually the door into understanding the Lord's forgiveness. See, what I think is so fascinating is this command to forgive is actually one of the chief ways that God increases our faith because it drives us to come to him and beg for forgiveness. As soon as you start thinking about how well you're doing at forgiveness you'll realize that you need God's forgiveness for how miserable you are at forgiving. And it will drive you to, to actually try to live this out and to fail will drive you into having to depend and cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Nobody, nobody can stand before God and say, I deserve heaven because I forgive so well. I deserve to be welcomed into your embrace because I love so well. Nobody Nobody can make that claim, and we all know it. And if you don't know it, it's because you haven't really tried to love anybody, and you haven't really tried to forgive anybody. Try to forgive somebody who sinned against you seven times in a day, over and over and over again. And when you find that you can't do it, throw yourself upon the mercy of God and, and gasp in wonder at what kind of God forgives like this. People like me who can't extend forgiveness. Cast yourself upon the mercy. Gaze into the eyes of the one who forgives you again and again and again and again, even though you still don't forgive very well. Trying to forgive and fail is what actually drives you into God's forgiveness. And that's what increases your faith, is to see that the cross and the forgiveness of God is so much bigger than you thought. You might have thought it, was, it just sort of got you back into square one so that you could have a relationship with God. But the longer you live as a Christian, the more you have to realize this that God's forgiveness of me is an ongoing forgiveness. And it was one thing to, to ask for God to forgive me before I knew any better. But how can I dare ask God to forgive me when I know better now? 
and I still do the same wretched things. I still treat my friends so horribly. I still don't show the love of God the way I should. How, how will you still be able to look God in the face? Only if you understand that the cross has always been bigger, has always been bigger. Spurgeon has this amazing quote I love. He says, listen, you cannot sin so much as God can forgive. You can only sin as a man or a woman, but God can forgive as a God. You sin as a finite creature, but the Lord forgives as the infinite creator. And it's only as we daily drink in the forgiveness of the gospel that we can be formed into a countercultural community that forgives, that doesn't just wallpaper over real brokenness, real sin. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright has a great quote. You can read it. But the point is, don't walk out of here and say what Jesus is saying here is unrealistic. What Jesus is saying here is impossible. But you will never really understand what his love for you is like until you throw yourself up against that brick wall of impossibility and have to crawl back to him bleeding and say, forgive me, not because I forgive so well, but because you forgive so well. That's our only hope, and it's a sure, solid hope. Let's pray together.